There are a few red flags if a company refuses to put a cross-section out. That's generally a big red flag. Are there other red flags that the money miners, the listeners out there can sort of, you know, chuck in the notebook? One of the things is obviously most assets have already been worked over before. There's very few real true greenfields discoveries. You do quite frequently see great new hole. You'll see that they've literally twinned an existing hole that was drilled in 1975 by Western Mining. You know, if they come out, so I'm going to put a scoping study out next week, they are clearly putting themselves into the, the bottom of the, the, the orphan period, we call it. You know, no one wants to be there. Underrated, overrated time, lotus resources. Overrated. Deep yellow. Overrated. Paladin. Neutral. <laughs> G'day, money miners. I am pumped for the recording to come. JD's uh, out there in Melbourne interviewing fund managers, just like he did, you know, not too long ago, where um, we got to hear from people who invest in the world that we care about the mining space, the metals producers um, and explorers and developers alike, and gets to gets to pluck their brains over there on the East Coast and they have some, I guess, views of the world that, you know, we don't always come across and they, they can express them in pretty interesting ways. The guest today, mate, you've snavelled two for the price of one. What have we got in store? Mate, I had a chat with the guys at Acorn Capital. So Rick Squire and Karina Bader, they run the Next Gen Resources Fund. So they're big fans of the Lasson curve. And as we sort of get into in the discussion, they focus on two different ends. They try to catch those, you know, advanced exploration, as they call them, stories. And then those companies on their way through production in that sort of development stage. So it was awesome, like you said, to, to get a bit of a different perspective, a bit of as Maddie would call it, away from the hot air of West Perth. They're a really switched on um, team. The two of them are both geologists by background. So we do get into the detail at times, talking about copper, talking about lithium, and a lot of the money miners are interested just in their portfolio, fair enough. So we spoke, I think, you know, at least 20 different stocks, maybe 30 different stocks. They were fair game for an underrated, overrated se session. So I reckon uh, I certainly got a lot of value from this and I reckon the money miners will too as well, mate. So I'm keen to share it. I can't wait, mate. And speaking of getting a lot of value, uh, how about JP Search getting a lot of value from the ads that we give him? Because uh, those guys, they don't, they don't need the ads because they are the best regardless. They've dominated their niche of placing finance talent in our sector. How's our timing up of the ads as well? We're having a chat with a fundy and... This is what the guys do, associates, analysts, you know, whether it's a family office, a natural resource fund, or a mining company, you know, these guys place them all. So get in touch. It can be a bit daunting to, to leave your job. We've both done it in the past, mate, and it's it's not the easiest decision. But even if you're just sort of pondering it, you know, thinking about it, get in touch with them, give them a call. They've done it, you know, plenty of times before, so they're the ones you want to speak with. If you can navigate your way around a spreadsheet and, you know, you know, you can understand basic stuff when it comes to valuing a company, you probably you probably got what it takes to work at a boutique, uh, whatever, right? And um, so get in touch with them. <laughs> uh, That's it. So Cheers, JP Search. They are the best. Also, if you're building out a corporate development team, you need talent, get in touch with them. Cheers. Let's rip into it, mate. Here we go. My chat with Acorn Capital's Rick Squire and Karina Bader. G'day, money miners. Here with me today, I've got Karina Bader and Rick Squire of Acorn Capital. How are you guys? Well, thanks. 
It's great. So you're both geologists, both I think cumulatively got about 20 years experience in ACORN. So we're going to chat a bit about your, your history, geologists coming through, your investment process, get into various commodities and your key picks. That all sound good to you guys? Great. All right, let's rip into it. So we've spoken with a few fund managers over the past couple months and a lot of them, are, they're pretty excited about where we're sort of at in the market at the moment. So from a company's point of view, it's, it's a bit tough for a lot of companies out there, but valuations are starting to look quite enticing. Are, are you guys sort of getting that same sense? Are you excited about the sort of prospects at the moment? Yeah, we certainly are. There's um, some deep value opening up in the in the sector, and uh, we're seeing you know a, a real differentiation in uh, in performance between stocks. So the classic example is lithium in in 2021, 2022, that it had such a strong strong run that it wasn't really a market for stock pickers because it was you know if you had a really well promoted story it went up regardless of the quality of the uh, the, the the project but uh, now what we're seeing is a real re- reversion to uh, to the usual shooting match where quality actually uh, makes a big difference in the performance of the stock and and we've seen that in the performance of a lot of lithium stocks this year for example that uh, uh, s- some have uh, performed really well like the the Azures and, and and Patriots and the like, and then then others have really struggled, and and uh, some have had uh, quite quite spectacular collapses, and so because that we, we think it's actually a, a great opportunity for for stock pickers because it's actually quality stocks that are being rewarded rather than uh, just a well marketed stock. There's also a layering of stage of development. You've definitely seen in the market the producers are being more um, appropriately valued for their underlying assets, whereas explorers have been completely sold down. So the that's where we're seeing the real value. divergence. Yeah, yeah it's it's fascinating to see. I, I think I read that you guys had participated in eight capital raisings over the last quarter. I believe is that a sort of higher number than usual. No, it's uh, pro- probably about uh, the same. It 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 it, uh, it does vary from from quarter to quarter, but um, we're starting to see a, a, a few uh, b- uh, come through uh, just in the last uh, probably three or four months. Are a lot of those investments follow-on investments or new investments that are you know you're finding stocks that you've perhaps always liked now at an attractive price? I'd say the majority, uh, six of the eight, are uh, follow-on investments, but two of them were new investments, and they were mainly to do with acquisitions of new projects that we like the look of. So zooming out and looking at the the broader cycle that we see ourselves in in the in the mining investment cycle, where do you guys sort of get the feeling we're at? Like we're talking about a lot of investments here, where there's companies that are you know doing the capital raisings because they need to do it to keep the lights on and stuff. Do you sort of see a, a turning in the in the near future or where do you get the impression we're kind of at? I think that's part of the problem. There's a lot of uncertainty around that. At Acorn, we're bottom-up investors, so we look at the asset first and we, if we like it and we decide that the valuation is appropriate, we'll look to invest within constraints of the portfolio and stock numbers per se. But there is clearly a macro overlay right now where there's a, a lot of macro uncertainty around interest rates and equity markets are clearly being buffeted by the view of the market around whether interest rates are going up, are they going sideways, are they going down. If they start to look like they're going down, then I, we would expect the equity market will be rewarded with that. If it's going up, then equities aren't going to be rewarded. If it's going sideways, how do we manage that? And, and 
Do you at Acorn take an active view on higher for longer or where interest rates are going, or are you just of the of the view that quality projects will get sort of built in the in the long run? Yeah, de de definitely. So you know, if we look at our performance in the last twelve months, um, two of our, our best performing stocks were gold producers. You know, this was leading up to um, sort of March or April. Yet. You know, in that period for the 12 months through to April, gold actually the gold price softened, and so, and so as you know, picking quality stocks, picking them at the right time in their development cycle, you can actually extract value, and uh, so we we um, we we think that bottom up picking is is definitely the way to uh, to extract value in 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 the market. And in terms of the the competitive landscape, not for the miners, but for yourselves as fund managers, we've seen over the past decade a lot of small cap fund managers go go out of business and shut up shop. What are the sort of repercussions, and how does that actually impact you guys? Is it harder to just sort of see price discovery with less funds out there buying some of the names, or is it just business as usual for for Acorn? We're fortunate in the sense that we've got a combination of institutional money and then we've got other products where it's in the wholesale market. And so so we've got that long-term support you know, that will actually take us through some of those cycles. So Acon's been around for nearly 25 years and so you know, we've been through these cycles in the past and we can, you know, we can show investors that the importance of being invested in the bottom is where you actually get those really, you know, uh, spectacular returns. You know, when the market uh, does turn. Now we don't know when the market's going to uh, turn, but but you know, history shows that it, it does go through these cycles. And so, you know, being fully invested at the bottom is the best way to actually get that long-term uh, performance. And so, so for 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 that reason, um, you know, we we just sort of stick to our our, our process, which has been developed over twenty five years. And and uh, you know, we're we're pretty comfortable with our uh, with our returns and 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 uh, performance today, I can see from my point of view, um, coming up to fourteen years in this industry, that um, there is a lot more uninformed investors trying to extract value or um, returns in the smaller end of the market. You've definitely seen the larger institutional money move further up the chain to the sort of X two hundred space on the ASX, and a lot less. Um, institutional money at the sort of sub 250, which is where Acorn naturally plays, that does create funding issues for the companies that are looking to develop those assets. In the long run, I, I see that translating into less capital for development, which will ultimately underpin a higher for longer uh, strategy, because if you can't progress your projects because you're starved of capital, then, then no projects progress. Uh, and ultimately, resources are a finite um, commodity and they eventually run out and you have to find new resources. But if no one's funding that discovery and that development pathway, those resources don't get to market in the end. It's a longer view. But uh, it, those who are playing the space tend to be less informed. They tend to be more momentum driven. For example, the lithium market a couple, you know, in the last couple of years, now they've sort of jumped onto the uranium market. That does provide us with opportunities to extract better value. But again, we take a diversified view. We try to maintain exposure across a, a range of commodities and a range of stages of development, and we don't try and overlay it with a commodity expectation. Do you, do you have the sort of impression that active management will do better over the next decade in an environment where we don't see interest rates so low for, for so long as perhaps more money, like we've seen the, 
the future fund come in and say they're going to give, I think, 60-odd billion dollars toward active managers, do you anticipate at all that that will sort of remedy the situation where these companies don't get the capital that they need to develop assets? I would still, you'd want to look at who those fund managers were and I would still question whether they're going below the ASX 200, especially for the future fund, which has such a large amount of money. Are they going to be deploying that in X250 space? I would seriously suggest not. Not knowing, I'm not making any assertions, but I would assume it won't be. I still think it's a good opportunity uh, in the space for, for for active management. Obviously, obviously we're, we're biased because we are active managers. So we're selling <laughs> our own book here, book. but uh, but uh, we you know I gave the example of lithium earlier that uh, you know when you have a white hot uh, 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 a bull market like uh, lithium. It, all boats floated, and it was it was not actually quality that was winning out. But we've seen again. You go back and you have a look at the performance of lithium stocks this year, and uh, we would strongly argue that the the highest quality projects are the ones that have performed well this year, and the the poorer quality uh, projects that have a lot of uh, uh, technical risks around the, uh, the the processing methods or or the jurisdictional risk associated with the the asset. Those stocks have. Uh, underperformed uh, the, the, the most. They've been the, the poorest performers of all of them. And so you can apply that across, you know, other commodities and you'll start to see now that, uh, you know, the gold explorers are, are really struggling out there, but the quality the quality gold explorers with good management teams, good good uh, uh, projects, yeah, their share, share price is down, they're cheap, but they're still able to raise money. The ones with poor quality projects are going to really struggle to to raise any money, and and they're the ones that will will will, uh, will, will suffer the, the the worst. Yeah, I think we speak about some of those names. A lot of them come to mind that have performed not so well this year in the in the lithium space. I'm I'm keen to dive into to what you said there and get around your sort of investment process. So, the f- the first question I sort of have is how you guys maintain discipline. So exactly like you just mentioned, you have periods like 2021 where it doesn't matter whether you've got a good project or a bad project, you can, you can get rewarded. And then in, to, to a certain extent, the, the reverse is true where over the past year, even some good projects, they might have certain difficulties, might be funding the difficulty and they're getting, they're getting punished quite, quite severely. How do you sort of maintain discipline throughout the, the cycle and just stay true to your you know, economic viability of the, the project thesis? We, we, we follow a, a, a discipline process in terms of, you know, how we construct the, the, the portfolio. So, you know, it, it, you know, nearly every day of the week, uh, Karina and I are talking about, you know, what, what is the stage of development for, for this company? Because, you know, they make a discovery, they go through that, you know, development um, uh, process and then they get into construction and, and then ultimately into full production. So they're, they're moving along, you know, various stages of what's referred to as the, the Lausanne curve, which is the development cycle that a, a, a company goes through. So it doesn't matter whether it's resources or energy, they still pass through that uh, Lausanne curve. So we're always thinking about, you know, where are they along that? That journey along that uh, path, and then from from that, we're also th- thinking about the the, the technical risk because there may be, you know, some companies that that. Uh Maybe we're concerned about them when they get into into production, but through the construction phase, we see it as quite low risk. So you could actually take take an investment in a company where going through construction, you see it as quite low risk. You can see it uh, appreciating in value, but once they actually get into uh, production, 
that's not an asset that you you want to be around because the the risk during that startup and commissioning uh, are too great. So we're we're really thinking about that process and how do you extract the maximum of value because because you what you'll see is companies will will actually uh, grow in value. Uh, so long as there isn't a, a catastrophic collapse in the uh, in, in the metal price, that if the metal price is flat or slightly declining, like you know gold's performance from early last last year through till about April or May this year, that uh, you can actually you know get get companies that uh, perform really well. So an example of that would be uh, uh, Resolute or or even Tieto that uh, they performed really well from, you know, early last year through to sort of early this year as they were going through, you know, a, a particular uh, uh, a de-risking phase in the, in the, in the project evolution. Uh, but then we see different risks have come in in the last three or four months and then that's been reflected in the share price. So breaking down your portfolio, I think I saw that 35% is sub 100 mil market cap and that sort of roughly equates to those advanced explorers. And then you've got 50% being 500 mil plus market cap or across the various stages of development. Was this an active decision when you set up the fund to, to have it this way? Or is it sort of the way you break out those proportions? Has that been an iterative process to get there? Good question. It, we always intended to have uh, different stages of development weightings. By the very nature of a larger company being a larger weight in the portfolio, generally a lot more is known about those companies and their assets, so you can make a much more convicted um, investment, whereas with an explorer, it's binary. They might hit it, they might not. Uh, you're going to take more stocks, but they're going to be much smaller, a smaller companies, and we might take a smaller position because by their very nature... There's a lot more uncertainty um, and there's many areas where things can go wrong. When you're talking about a company that's going into construction to build a mine, there's some very obvious potential risks, but overall the underlying asset is extremely well known. The, the DFS has been released, the permitting's approved. All of those risks have already passed. Um, and so we've always had an intention that a proportion of the portfolio will be at that uh, higher market cap, higher lower risk but higher understood, less cert, um, more certainty part of the market and then we would always have a proportion in that discovery part of the market and it could be binary of all of the 35%, maybe one of those stocks will come good and the other five might fall over. Yeah, so w with hindsight, it, it looks like it's worked quite well over the, the past year in terms of insulating the portfolio. You've got the divergence that we just touched on before in valuation between the explorers on the one hand and on the other hand, the producers and that was that sort of insulation was that also one of the sort of thought through strategies that you would get periods in the market where certain get valued you know differently uh definitely that, that that's part of the uh the the, the risk mitigation uh process that we use so we, we we're not we make sure that we haven't got too many explorers but we always need that element of risk in the portfolio so so it's it's always there it might fluctuate between 25 and 35 percent but you know if if there's an explorer that gets in there and runs really hard like azure that we got into that you know early this year when they they announced the the, the big lithium intercept that you know we, we took a solid position in that and we let it run <coughs> and so that led to you know quite rapid growth in the, the in the size of that you know the explorer part of the, the 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 portfolio so we weren't trimming into that to hold it back we're, we're letting it run we're letting it uh 
you know, sort of maximise its gain. And so, but but we're still thinking about that compositional mix uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, stage of development, but also in terms of you know commodity diversification. And a lot of the weighting seems to be toward the economic viability of a project. How much weighting do you put into the management team of a company? Uh, more and more. <laughs> it, traditionally, you would, it, explorers, you would have a much higher weighting to management. Once an asset is known, you've got a resource, you know where it is in its permitting pathway, the, the DFS or PFS stages, there's less about management and more about knowledge of the asset. However, in these times, and I think those barriers to getting into production are growing, whether it's the permitting pathway, sovereign risk, um, metallurgical challenges, which we've seen all of those issues come to light with different companies over the last couple of years, um, management still retains quite a significant impact. So you can have the best, but a good quality asset will generally always trump um, in terms of its value and, and how we would assess it um, compared to management, but in an explorer, management is is a really important key because if they, they haven't got the history, it's very hard to back them, even if you like the asset. Or you might just say, I really like this asset, I want to see what happens with the drilling, but you'd take a much smaller position if you don't think the management... I mean, the reality is we wouldn't go into um, an explorer if we didn't have a view around the management. I've, in my research about you guys, come across this proprietary database and a lot of funds say they've got this sort of database it's part of their edge in in the market so one of the things that described is that you guys have a, a database on thousands of resources out there I'm interested to hear how you go about ranking or categorizing the the various resources across across the world I assume yeah um, so that's yeah, that's, that's sort of an ongoing, we're constantly uh, adjusting and adapting that database as new data and companies are publishing constantly new resources. Uh, it's something that we've done from the first day I started at ACORN and it was already sort of begun. Um, and that is a significant part of the rigour around our process. When we look at the bottom up, we literally go and, and plug all those resources in. We compare like with like, commodity to commodity, and then we look to the companies that we that come to the top of those screens and it is very much a resource versus market cap um, equation with uh, country risk management uh, and permitting stage all feed into where that uh, valuation lies um, and then we do it commodity by commodity and, and go for the ones we think that are best. Some, com I mean, you can have a big asset but if it, we don't think it's mineable even though the commodity itself gives it a valuation, we, we go, well, that's 500 metres down, it's never going to be mined unless commodity prices really go through the roof. There's a reason the market cap is $20 million. Um, so that's clearly not going to be a company we're going to look to invest in because ultimately this, this project has to be able to be mined in a commercially and, and economic way. Um, and that's going back to what Rick said about that stage and the, all of the risks that need to be addressed as those projects come through from discovery to production. There are so many barriers. There's metallurgy, there's financing, there's um, debt capability, there's um, sovereign risk, um, and all of those things can change at any time. As Rick mentioned, Resolute, one of the issues is, is the Mali government and its changes and the coups that have happened across West Africa. Um, you know, a year ago it wasn't an issue, today it's an issue. Um, so things are always changing uh, and those things are not necessarily quant qualitative risks, they're not necessarily quantitative. We always start off with the quantitative resource versus 
the uh, market cap of the company and then we put in the <laughs> qualitative aspects as an overlay over that. I, I want to dive into the, the qualitative aspects you touched on. So you've both got backgrounds in geology and in the sort of part of the market where, where we operate, geology feels a bit like, you know, art given that you've got imperfect inputs coming in, you know, you, you can't have all the, the drill data that you'd want to have. I'm interested to hear, do you guys butt heads over your interpretation of projects regularly or at all? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, that technical view is at the core of, um, of every investment we make. And so, so you know, well before COVID, Karina and I were, were doing video calls with um, uh, geologists on site, you know, all around the world. So, you know, we would do uh, video calls with, uh, before COVID, we are doing video calls with uh, companies in Sweden, in South America, you know, obviously all through Australia and in the US that we, because we, we always try to get to uh, the, the, the people at the coalface who are actually dealing with the resource, putting together whether it's the, the, the geologist or the mining engineer, and, and really to get down and to, to, to look at the raw data, to actually look at the drill intercepts and to, to look at the individual grades on that. And from that, you, you, you get not just valuable geological information about, you know, what's the grade distribution, you know, is, it, is this 10 metres at 10 grams all being carried on two or three metres, or is it a nice uh, even... Uh, distribution of grade and then you can look at the uh, on section you know what's the continuity on on section and then from one section to the next so so then you're developing a really good understanding three-dimensionally of, of of what that deposit looks like and from that then you can actually understand the the mineability of uh, of that and then you can start to think about you know any challenges that uh, may present themselves in terms of the the processing or the permitting that uh, will follow from that. At the very early exploration phase, I'm not sure that we'd say we disagree. It'll be more about a question of which project, you know, there might be nuances around a project and how we might decide that that could, might be valued by the market. So, again, it's actually helpful to have two different views about how we think the market might react to this particular news or that project. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a bit of a black art as well. Who can really tell? Behavioural scientists, I'm sure, can work it out, but not us. Have you had projects or a specific project that sort of comes to mind where you thought, you know, the, the initial drilling, the initial announcement comes out and you're sort of thinking that doesn't stack up, although the market's giving it a lot of weighting, and then it changed your mind later on and you think, actually, it, it looks a bit better than I first sort of thought? Oh, there's plenty like that. Mm. So DeGray was probably a good one that when, you know, when it first came out, you know, the, the drilling, there was a couple of good holes, but then they drilled some holes under it that had uh, nothing. You could see the shape of the intrusion that was controlling the deposit was uh, quite irregular. And so, so you know, we openly admit we missed that one. And uh, we spoke to them, you know, on the day of the announcement, we, we, we spoke to Simon and, and, uh, and, you know, had a look and we went through those sections. We said, let's wait for the next, uh, next round of drilling. So then the next round of drilling came through and it was good, but you could still see there were gaps. There was even, I remember there was a section where they had great data and the next section to the north had very little on it. And it looked like there was data, but very, very few intercepts. And it was that irregular shape of the, uh, the ore body. And so we're like, oh, let's wait. And then they drilled and suddenly that started to open up, by which stage the you know, the, the, the market take cap had uh, taken off and had generated enormous momentum. And uh, we thought, well, that, that's it. And uh, one thing that, um, um, that proceeded to me was a guy, Dave Ransom, 
And uh, D- Dave always said, he said, never chase trams up Collins Street. He said, there'll always be another one coming. So, uh, so you know, we missed the grey, you know, it was unfortunate. Uh, but, but, you know, that was a learning exercise. But I think the process was still robust because, you know, we looked at it and there was a reason for, 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 for not making, not pursuing that. And yet it turned out. And then once we got comfortable, we then looked at the valuation and it wasn't there for us. You know, we saw better opportunities elsewhere. So we let that one go. So not that it's a, a, a bad project. You know, it, it, it was still a project. It still had a little bit left to run. But we thought at that point, once we got comfortable, it had lost uh, it had lost its potential to grow much beyond that. Karina, any others that come to mind? Uh, we often look at results and because we're geologists, one of the key things to look at is around that internal dilution. And so a headline number, 10 metres at whatever grade, um, is always looks interesting and exciting. But then you once you look at the cross-section, there are a few red flags for company refuses to put a cross-section out. That's generally a big red flag. Um, it's not unprecedented. It can, you know, there can be reasons for why they might not put out a cross-section, but that's generally a very big indicator uh, to us to, you know, have another look and, and review that. And we wouldn't necessarily, you know, if there's no cross-sections, you're not going to invest. You've got to, hence we'd call the company and say, can we talk to the geo on site? What's, why haven't you got sections? Um, internal dilution is, you know, there are industry norms and industry standards around how to um, put intercepts out. And you always want to just clarify and ensure that that's what they're doing. Um, so there's a lot of... Then there's also geometry. You get a lot of drilling. It might be um, air core, RAB, RC, diamond. Clearly diamond is an actual example of rock. You've got the best structural um, capacity to determine what the mineralisation is doing from diamond, but from RAB and air core, you're just getting little chips and even RC, tiny chips. It's so hard to tell um, the what is the ore body and where is it going and how how they drilled it. So often it's really important to determine the orientation of those holes. Are they drilling down dip? Um, and I'd say in, in a lot of cases they often are at those very early stages. That doesn't necessarily mean that's not a good ore body or a good discovery, but you'd be like, no, I want to see more drilling um, and more data around that or historic information as well to determine how that um, looks. And often when they put on a cross-section, you can actually see that quite clearly. Karina, you mentioned red flags there, cross-sections being one of them. I'm sure you guys see fairly regularly companies come out with quote-unquote new discoveries trying to excite the market. Are there other red flags that the money miners, the listeners out there can sort of, you know, chuck in the notebook? One of the things is obviously most assets have already been worked over before. There's very few real, true greenfields discoveries. Um, and you do quite frequently see great new hole and then you say from a plan view or a cross-section, you'll see that they've literally twinned an existing hole that was drilled in 1975 by Western Mining. So it's not really a new discovery. Um, and again, you have to look at is that a valuable hole or a really, is it literally drilled five metres from an existing intercept? So, again, this leads back to what Rick was saying. Where's the continuity across section? How big can this does this asset start to look? Um, do you really think you can put a pitch shell around it? So we're always thinking about that from the very beginning when we look at any drill hole information. I think we saw a lot of those tricks in 2020 and 2021. I'm interested from a geological point of view as well. Are there certain deposit styles that you think gee, they're, they're just hard work or they're, they're very hard to actually turn into a producing mine and that leads you to sort of steer clear? 
Yeah, for um, uh, there certainly are. Um, we, we, if we look at copper, for example, um, you know, everyone wants to get copper exposure, but uh, it's actually a real challenge to sort of find you know good good copper stocks on the ASX. And we think uh, there's a couple of reasons for that, and and one of them is actually a a big geological bias. That if you look at uh, there was an analysis done. By American guy Don Don Singer, and uh, he, he showed that if when, when he did a compilation of all the copper resources in, in the world, uh, he found that 69% of them were porphyry copper deposits. So so these are these big systems like uh, Cadia in, in in New South Wales. So you know really big uh, um, uh, uh, copper systems. So so two thirds of the metal is contained in a single deposit style. But then you look who operates them it's it's all the the super majors you know the bhps the rios the newcrests and and the like so it's actually really difficult to to get those projects in in into production uh, uh there's a huge capex uh build that's up there but that usually they take uh, several decades to actually get through that um that uh, uh, development um, uh, pipeline and, and through the funding stages to actually get into into production. So once they're in production, they're immensely uh, pro- profitable uh, for, for the big companies, but it's a really a, a game for the big players. So so what it means is you're then restricted to the, the third that's left. And uh, of that third, um, uh, of that 30% that's left, uh, about 12% is another style called sediment-hosted copper. Now, most of them are, are, are actually uh, either in Poland or the, the uh, copper belt in Africa. You might have heard the Central African Copper Belt, which is probably more known for its cobalt than the, the copper production. But, but uh, 12% goes into that. And then there were three other categories. Uh, that that uh, comprise the rest of the copper uh, resources, and they're about five percent each. So one of them is uh, what's termed iron oxide copper gold. So really big examples are, are like uh, uh, Olympic Dam in South Australia. Uh, moderate size ones, but still great, uh, is like Ernest Henry, and so that's a great great project. So suddenly you you see uh, Olympic Dam, well, a bit like porphyries. That's only for the super majors, but. But uh, uh, Ernest Henry is something that uh, you know a lot of companies would like to find, and then there are smaller but still profitable examples like the the Eloise mine that AIC Mines uh, has in Queensland. Uh, the other two are VMS uh, uh, projects with volcanogenic massive sulphide. So um, the Triton deposit that Eris has got is an example. Uh, the uh, some of the the uh, the the mines in the Cobar region, like CSA, at that style of VMS uh, uh, project, and then the third one are these uh, massive sulphide, a bit like Chalice. So that's a nickel copper PGE uh, deposit. So so you can see you're getting down to that sort of the scrappier end. But but if you if you then go on as a, as an investor, if you're into porphyry exploration, that's great. But you're really shooting for the moon if you want to find that style of uh, deposit. And similarly, if you're looking for a, an Olympic dam, well, that's great, but the chances of, of, of success are, are really low. You actually want to think about the types of deposits that can actually be put into production by a, a small or a, a mid-cap company. Well, then you're actually restricted to those uh, iron oxide copper golds that you see in Queensland, like uh, the the Ernest Henry or the Eloise style uh, deposits, or or you go for these um, VMS, but you've got to be careful on which ones you go for because there's a lot of uh, uh, scrappy little ones that never get across the line. There are some large ones like uh, uh, Matza that um, 
that uh, Sandfire has got. So they're great. The, in the Iberian Pyrite Belt, that's a you know a great one. So so to really think about those technicals, I know for listeners, I'm 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 getting quite deep in the in in the weeds in terms of the technicals. But if you can understand those uh, that those uh, differences, you can actually target the the types of deposits that are more likely to to lead to a discovery that's going to be profitable for an investor rather than shooting for the moon and actually not not actually getting there and does this directly impact how you guys will invest will you not go for those exploration players looking for those or do you think it's okay because a a they might not be the ones that mine it but a major could take it off their hands yeah, good, good question. We, we uh, Generally, we try to avoid the ones that are too difficult, uh, but sometimes there is an opportunity where they might make a discovery, but you know that you just don't hang around. So if someone makes a uh, a, a discovery, you know, a, they're drilling for a porphyry or a iron oxide copper gold, like a Olympic dam-style deposit, yeah, well, if someone makes that discovery and we read it tomorrow, we'll probably go and invest, but we're not going to hang around for a long time because we know that, that, that the... the on average, it, it'll take a couple of decades to get that into production, and so it's not a long-term investment. It's more a, a short-term invest, short-term investment. Whereas if someone drills something and it's an Ernest Henry-style deposit, well, that's great. That's something that a small or mid-cap company could get into production, and and so that's one to to actually stay on, stay along the journey for. And so that that difference is really important in terms of how we invest. And so you mentioned a few there. I'm keen to talk about a few of the specific stocks. So the the Max SPAC that owns the CSA mine, they're going to supposedly list in the next six months or so in Australia. You, you gave a bit of background on the the geology, but do you guys as investors, you know, they, they paid a pretty hefty price ultimately for that. Are you of the opinion that the mine might be deep and so on, but they can actually run that at a profitable margin and make money from it? Or is that one you'd sort of steer clear from? Uh, no, we've, we've invested in that one. <laughs> what we see is the opportunity for the new management team to actually make further discovery down dip of that ore body. Um, we also believe that they can extract further synergies out of the operation. Obviously, previously it sat within the Glencore stable uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you would have had the head office allocating a significant portion of its activities to that mine site, which is now stripped out single asset, single company. Uh, so there will be the opportunity for an increased margin on that operation. The other thing about that asset is it's quite a material producer. To Rick's point, there are very few producers on the ASX. Oz has been taken by BHP. Um, the next down the, the line is Sandfire. Um, where do you go to get 40,000 tonnes of copper production on the ASX. There's really only one, and that's going to be MTAL and the CSA mine. Were you surprised that no other majors came in and had a go at Oz, given the Tier 1 jurisdiction of the assets and the scale of the assets that you touch on? The, the added value for BHP, which you can't see in the price they paid, is the synergy that they can have between those two operations and the way they can manage the concentrate um, through their mills uh, with the by those two coming together. No other major would have been able to achieve that, so they would have struggled, as Oz did, in the same way over the long term to continue to improve operations. At the end of the day, the real unlocking of that operation is the ability to work within Olympic Dam, and um, you, I'm assuming over time we'll see that come through in the BHP books. The other thing I really liked about uh, the, the the Oz portfolio was uh, the West Mousegrave project mm. with... Uh, 
uh, Nebo Bay Bell. You know, that was, again, the technical side, that's one of these uh, magmatic sulphide deposits. So like I said, chalice with its uh, uh, nickel-copper uh, PGEs, that's just the nickel-copper uh, part, but it's it's part of that broad basket. So, yeah, they're, they're actually, you know, great, great deposits. Now, it's very remote, but that's what, you know, a big company can afford the time and the money to actually develop that. So I, I'd be if, uh, amazed if, if uh, BHP doesn't see that as, you know, a valuable part of the acquisition that was, you know, really poorly valued by the, the, the market because the, the market says, oh, well, that's like, you know, eight or ten years out, so they put very little value on it. But for BHP, ten years is not very long at all. I mean, interestingly, that asset was bought out of BHP not that yeah. long ago. So <laughs> the way these things go in circles is always very history, interesting. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt, though, that it was a bigger capital hurdle for West Musgrave, and that was why Oz bought it in the end, and, and well, they jv into it and then bought it off the smaller company. Um, you know, and we spoke to that company as they were trying to develop that project and they really kind of came to a grinding halt as they sort of had to move through from PFS to DFS and that's when they brought Oz in and Oz being in that location was a logical buyer um, and they obviously looked to diversify their uh, commodity suite and, yes, BHP will get the advantage of that as well. But the other thing the big companies can do is borrow money a lot more cheaply and you can actually borrow money at a corporate facility if you're a big company with multiple operations. Um, a small single-asset, single-mine company just cannot get, unless it's gold, you can't get debt. It's just not done on the ASX. Maybe um, in Europe or, or North America you have a lot more of these streaming companies, these royalty companies who will layer on and, and layer on their, their instruments, their financial instruments, and you, therefore those companies can progress. But in um, Australia, they're, they're a lot less prolific. We don't actually like them. They tend to... Mm. Meadows Acquisition Corp was, was an example, actually. With Correct, this, a lot of streaming. streaming, yes. Another company I'm keen to talk about is 29 Metals. So they're, again, assets that have been around for, for a long time. So you've got Golden Grove and Capricorn Copper. Firstly, on Capricorn Copper, that's had a tough 18 months, to, to say the least. Are you guys of the opinion that the, the capital raising and the, the money that's going to be spent is money well spent or is that an asset that should perhaps, given the, the risks, stay offline? That's a good question. It's a, it's, it's a tricky one. Like, um, you, know, we, you know, if you stand back, I think Peter Albert done, did a fantastic job getting the company to the position they got, but now they just had this freak weather event that's really set them back and, uh, and uh, they've, they're in an awkward position, there's no doubt, because they're... The, the key asset is is in Western Australia, but the the, the secondary asset is the, the 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 Queensland one, and and uh, the thing about the Queensland one is well, that's that's a it's predominantly copper, whereas the uh, the Golden Grove is a zinc mine with a fair bit of uh, copper to it. So if you strip it out, they're not actually a copper producer; they're more a polymetallic or a zinc producer in terms of the revenue source so and it showed because golden grove barely made money the last couple well of that's right and so there's so so it's you know they're, they're they're in this uh awkward position now now as we lead into the uh the wet season they, they've got to discharge an enormous volume of water out of that pit and, and one of the challenges there is is if they uh, uh if they um, don't get the the rainfall levels to the to the rates that are needed for them to actually discharge because there's a a volume ratio that, that which the government permits the the, the water release, that uh, they may may not actually release all that water, and then suddenly 
in, in April next year, we've got to wait another 12 months for the next wet season to, so they don't to discharge want, that water. They don't want too much water, but they need enough but water. They need, yeah, so there's a, there's a little window there where there needs to be a minimum amount, but they obviously don't want the maximum amount that they had last time. So, so then, you know, it, it, it could be sitting there for, for quite some time. And so that's a real, real, real challenge for them. It's a challenge for investors trying to, to, to weigh that up because it may not get into full production. He, he is starting up. And, uh, and and they're doing the best they can, but there is a serious risk on on where they go, and then and then what 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 do you do? Because the the highest grade part of the the, the deposit that they're mining is actually underwater, and the the part the, the lower grade, which is the less profitable part, particularly at these uh, prices, uh, that that's what uh, they've got access to. So so they are in a an awkward bind. So you can't sit there and do nothing, but there's a really there is a risk on actually moving forward that they may not actually clear the hurdle. Absolutely. There's uh, another paper you guys wrote on the, um, actually prior to the copper one was on, on lithium. And there was a few conclusions that, that I was interested in talking about. One of them was that for investors wanting to gain exposure, you sort of recommended that a place to look would be at smaller cap companies focused on hard rock assets what why was the preference there for hard rock over your brine projects speed to production essentially and capital need to production you're only producing an intermediate product when you produce spodumene it's a somewhere between a five and six percent lithium content at that point at which you ship it off to get further processed somewhere else, predominantly in China. So the capital needs to get it to that stage are significantly less than a brine. Um, and then we also know from experience that brines take an awful lot longer to get to nameplate capacity, if ever they actually get to nameplate capacity. Um, whereas, I mean, all mines have issues getting to full nameplate at one kind or another. The question is, are you going to miss it by 10% or are you going to miss it by 50%? Um, and obviously that can feed into the economics uh, each reservoir in a brine asset is unique. Their ability to tweak the chemistry to get the appropriate concentration to put it through the mill to get the battery-grade product. Um, the advantages of a brine are that you will be producing a battery-grade product at the end of that process. So you have to think about a brine is the equivalent of a spodumene plus your hydroxide plant producing a 99.9% .9 product. And if you add those two capexes together, it's equivalent to the brine capex um, but in Australia, because of the nature of our mining industry, we're able to produce the intermediary product and make money on it and sell it to the next uh, stage of the supply chain. Brines, you don't generally, you can't do that. You have to produce it at that stage. Um, you're often operating in jurisdictions at um, high altitudes. That creates its own issues of temperature fluctuation, which things can work really well in the lab. But as we know from the Orchem Oracobra ramp up, um, when you're actually building the plant at high levels and extreme temperatures, you have to put heating in and then cooling and then heating and then cooling at different stages of your process plant once it's built. You can ask the, uh, the potash hopefuls in WA about <sighs> steady state versus the real world as well. There was another aspect of the, uh, the paper that I found quite interesting was on, it was on DLE technology. Are, are you guys in the, the camp that say in five, 10 years, this is a technology that's here and, you know, is contributing in a meaningful way to lithium production globally? 
Yeah, I, th- I think so. If if you have a look at um, if you have a look at uh, uh, HPAL for uh, for nickel, twenty years ago it was just the killing fields for investors. It was just like total carnage. No one wanted to touch it. You know, after the the, the disasters of Anaconda and Cores and 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 the likes, it was like a terrible place to be. But then you look, you know. Fast forward to today, 20 years later, and we're seeing these uh, HPAL plants starting up and within 12, 18 months they're at capacity and they're, they're actually really profitable, very successful uh, operations. And so so there's been – but it took 20 years to get to that point. And then also if you look at who's operating them today, it's BHP, it's Glencore, it's uh, Sumitomo, it's the really big producers – that are actually operating these really sophisticated uh, nickel plants that no one wanted to touch 20 years ago. And, and you know, I, I think that uh, DLE's got the potential to, uh, to, to be the same, but I think the way to develop it is not to actually start with a DLE operation. It would be someone like, and I'll just make it up, but it'd be someone like Allchem uh, going and sticking a DLE plant on the back of their operation at the moment, just to squeeze a little bit more, a little more juice out of the lemon, and to to uh, develop the technique that way, and then to slowly scale it up. And once they've got that down, and and whether it takes five, ten, or fifteen years, that's when you roll it out onto a new new operation, a new project, and and you start from there. And so in twenty years' time, yeah, sure. But uh, if you, it, it's it's for you know, the big companies to come and, and develop that technique. But for someone to, to start it up, you know, we really struggle as investors when, when you say, okay, we're going to pull it out, we're going to put it into this black box. We can't tell you what's in that black box. We can't tell you anything about it, but it's going to spit out the, the lithium on the back end. That's a, a massive red, red flag. And so that's why we, you know, we avoid those, uh, th- those projects at the moment. And were there any other, any other takeaways studying lithium and, and writing the paper that you think are sort of under or perhaps over appreciated by the market, given it's a, a commodity that's had so much interest in the past three or so years now, so, so much retail interest to, to your point earlier, Karina? It's still difficult to get a lithium project built on time and to spec in the, at the budget originally projected. Um, and you're kind of seeing Lion Town go through that now. First one that came to um, mind. So, you know, my view is if a, if an MD came through the door and said, "I'm going to build this on time and on budget," I'll say you're dreaming. Um, it, it nobody really actually ever achieves it. And if you ever did a stu- you know, an, a, a case study of looking back at P- DFSs versus what happens by the time they're actually in production, I'm pretty sure at least thirty percent over budget and at least thirty percent over time on average. Um, I'm just pulling that out of. The air. I haven't got any real statistics to back those numbers up, but it is difficult for everyone. Um, but for lithium, because it's a chemistry set and each asset is bespoke, you often hear the comment, there's lithium everywhere, um, so at some point it will meet demand. But they seem to tend to forget that there's a chemistry set between the end product and the beginning product. 1% spodumene gets mined, gets converted to 6%, which means 96% is of waste is sent off to the hydroxide plant to generate your 99.9 product, similarly with the brine. Yeah, I think it was Elon Musk that said it's... It's absolutely everywhere. <laughs> I'm keen to get into your guys' top picks now. So just looking over the portfolio, I noticed top five make up roughly 32%. You aim to pick 25 to 40 stocks in the portfolio. So to start with some of the, the best performers from the, the last uh, three months, you had 
what you previously mentioned, Azure Minerals. The the specific questions that I'm interested in is we've spoken a lot about the the Lasson curve and the the bumps along the way. So given they're, you know, rocketing up on that first leg, approaching the first peak of the, you know, on the Lasson curve, where do you sort of think they're at and what sort of signs do you look for in terms of like this is time for Acon to step off and let them sort of do scoping, PFS, DFS, and then perhaps come in in a couple of years' time? Yeah, look, great question. So in terms of, you know, where we think it is, it's it's certainly, you know, well on the way up on that 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 first, you know, it, the exponential growth part of the uh, the, the curve. So uh, when it starts to move over is is when you, you see they start to do the infill program and, and start to uh, uh, move, you know, deeply into that, um, that, that, that next study phase. But the, the, the companies can control that in terms of how they message to the, to, to the market too. You know, if they come out and say, I'm going to put a scoping study out next week, they are clearly putting themselves into the, the bottom of the, the, the orphan period, we call it, the, the long flat flat period on, on that curve because, you know, no one wants to be there. And, and if the market, if the, the company messages that way, they're telling everyone uh, what they're going to do. But I think in terms of, you know, where they are now, there's still uh, more potential. And, and and what Tony's doing to, to show that upside is, you know, he, he's talking about the, the, the other pegmatites to the, to, to, to the southwest. Uh, that he's about to start up. There's also he, he's uh, waiting to get uh, clearance. There's quite a large uh, pegmatite uh, to the uh, to the east or, or, or northeast of where he's uh, been drilling uh, so far. And and uh, if he can get access to that, you know, drill that out and and show that hey, this thing could be you know 200, 250 million tons. That's where there's uh, potential for for really large growth of of that uh, project and and that's where there is you know further upside and and uh, the the other the, the other really in, important uh, feature about um, uh, about Azure which is a, a a major point of difference with most of the other uh, lithium projects out there is when when you look at the intercepts they they're there's a single really broad zone. So that's very mineable, whether it's an open pit or, or, or underground. And there's a, quite a few companies out there that have reasonably large resources. But when you have a look at it in detail, it's multiple stack loads all on top of each other. Uh, they're quite discontinuous uh, uh, vertically and, and, and laterally. So it's very hard to actually, you know, join the dots between the drill holes. You know, what exactly is the dip on that thing? And then when you come to mine that, you 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 can imagine something that's skinny and dips at forty five degrees. Well, you do your drilling and blasting; it gets thrown all over the place. And suddenly, you're mixing up some of the waste rock with the ore. And if that waste rock is uh, a basalt, it contains elevated amounts of iron. That the the the, uh, the iron bearing minerals have similar density to the spodumene. So you put it in the processing plant; it concentrates up all the iron and the spodumene. And then suddenly, you've got a uh, a processing issue. Whereas if it's 100 metres wide, it's the same material, the dilution's trivial. It's not an issue. But so that, that really speaks to the point you made earlier, Corinne, about looking at the cross-sections and seeing how it all stacks up. I'm really keen to hear more about this, this point of not uttering the word scoping study for as long as possible because Chalice comes to mind and they did a phenomenal job and they went three and a half years without you know, getting near the uh, scoping study until it eventually came out and it worked phenomenally well, the market cap it was over a $3 billion, $3 billion company. Yeah. It was it was crazy. And it, 
in hindsight now, it, it doesn't look like, I mean, yes, they raised a lot of money at very high prices, but eventually they've got to supposedly de develop the, the, the asset. asset. So it's, you got to find that balance right between, you know, actually becoming a money-making venture, which Azure, if things keep going the way they, they are, could become like a sort of Pilgangora type asset or, you know, being a, a chalice, right? I'm not sure if you've got more thoughts on that between finding the balance. It's not just the, the so the, the key issue there is the capital requirement. So a scoping study will flag to the market how much money you need to get this thing into production. However, you can't actually give them all of the good points for potential upside because the ASX rules won't let you. That's the challenge around putting a scoping study out. Once you're at sort of PFS and DFS, you can provide more information to market. But at the scoping study, it's very limited because... Generally, at that stage, the drilling that has been done tends to be less um, intensive, and so there's a higher proportion of what's called an inferred resource, and the ASX won't let you include that in your scoping study, um, and that's why then you have to go back and do infill drilling and increase it to indicated or measured, um, which increases the confidence because the drill spacing is tighter. Um, that's one aspect. That will cost money. That's a working capital requirement. Then you've got the permitting pathway. Um, once you get to a scoping study, you do then need to start your permitting pathway. And let's face it, for a gold mine, maybe you can get into production within two years if you've got an existing mining licence. But if you're starting from scratch and there's no existing mining licence, we're talking a five-year term on average. Uh, and some will take a decade to get permitted. And that, again, comes back to the complexity, size, where are you located, national parks versus denuded farmlands. Um, and jurisdiction. Another company I want to talk about, I, I feel like I have to talk about because uranium is all the rage lately, is Boss Energy. So my first, um, what I firstly want to hear from you guys is how you view in-situ leaching projects versus hard rock uranium mining as a, as a geolo geologist. How do you sort of approach those various types? In-situ in mining is um, uh, really common in the US and Kazakhstan. So Kazakhstan the major producer. And, and so, you know, our, our understanding of the processing of those uh, the, the, those types of uh, uh, projects has is, is really grown exponentially in the, la the last couple of decades. And, and uh, certainly in the last 10 years that, you know, when the uranium price... Uh, dipped down. Everyone thought even the the Kazakh operations would, would close down because they were operating at at uh, 25, 30 bucks a pound. But then they discovered when they were forced to uh, actually work efficiently that they could do things to tweak the operation and, and actually make them uh, um, even profitable at that uh, you know 15, almost 20 dollars a pound, which was you know sort of un unthought that uh, unheard of or, or thought impossible. Uh, uh, Ten years ago, so so th they've actually become you now really efficient. So the thing with um, uh, uh, Honeymoon Well is the the uh, I don't want to get too deep into the technicals, but they wanted to change the uh, the, the chemistry of that uh, that 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 process, uh, and, and so they're doing something a little bit different to, to last time because they had all, all sorts of uh, problems when they started the plant up. It was precipitating out you know gypsum and another. Uh, funking uh, uh, minerals that were making it very difficult to to operate, and so so then they've uh, uh, put in a, a change to that uh, circuit, and that's where they are now. They're about to start it, so it's not exactly a, a perfect restart of the old operation. There there is a difference, uh, but the the advantage of the uh, honeymoon well operation is the grades of that project are, are much higher than than the the average uh, in situ leach project 
project. So there are, there were swings and roundabouts. You know, there are differences in its uh, uh, chemistry, but there are differences in the in, in the grade. And so we think that one's uh, well positioned. There's still a lot of risk because when you go through that, they're doing something that's a little bit different uh, to the past. And so that that's where uh, you know it's been a a, a good stock uh, for, for us certainly over the the last three or four years. But uh, heading into next year as they go through uh, commissioning. That's where we'll be taking, you know, a, a much closer a, a look and and being, you know, sort of hyper alert to to any news feed coming out. And is Boss still the the go to play for you guys in the uranium space in Australia? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to speak first? Yeah, you go first. Yes, I think so. At this point in time, however. They have clearly all had a significant run, the ones that are closer to production than of greenfields, um, and we are still reviewing the landscape and, and trying to decide, you know, once we're ready to move off as as the valuation of BOSS looks fully um, valued, we will look to cycle down and, and find other opportunities, whether it's an exploration. I mean, for the last decade, being in uranium exploration has been a really challenging space to be, but perhaps now in a different world that can be more viable or do you look to go back to the developers and, and the near-term producers um, and other opportunities in that space? Red is another stock, Red 5, another stock that you guys hold. We spent a lot of time going into the uh, the sort of saga over Gualia and Leonora and the, the consolidation. So we recently saw, I think three odd weeks ago, Silver Lake come on and take, I think, 11 or 12% stake in the company. What's your guys' view on how this consolidation? We saw yesterday again, Genesis try to buy out the remainder of uh, Dacian. So, do you guys have a view on how that all plays out? And is part of the thesis for Red that a consolidation is inevitable in the region there? I think under a higher for longer interest rate scenario and a high inflationary environment, you've got to assume that consolidation has to happen. Um, having said that, you've got as we mentioned earlier, the junior uh, explorers have been pounded and they've been really sold off. So when you think about how do you, are you going to spend your money drilling in ex, um, your own ground or is it actually cheaper to acquire opportunity? Um, at the moment, I would say the the it is in favour of acquisition, looking to buy your ounces on the ground rather than go and drill it because the cost of the drilling and the inflationary environment, and it's also getting skills. It's still a challenge to get bums on seats, uh, and we still hear that from management teams. Uh, in that scenario, it does seem it's more sensible to go and buy the, and acquire other assets that are already discovered. And those junior guys who have made a discovery might have a million ounces, but they're just really struggling to raise the money to continue to develop those assets. And you'd have to question in certain jurisdictions, and WA around Kalgoorlie is one of them, would you be building another plant? The reality is in a high inflationary environment, difficult to get skills, hard to get debt and the debt's a lot more expensive than it was two years ago, why would you go down that path if, in fact, it's um, you potentially could get acquired a lot cheaper? Yeah, interest rates aren't zero anymore. Uh, you guys pointed out some of your detractors, which which I think is really cool and more funds should do of, and I want to speak about a couple of them. The first one is Patriot. We've spoken at length on the show about Patriot as well, and I was just interested with something you said earlier. They... You spoke about red flags and a lack of cross-sections and Patriot was a company that didn't put out uh, cross-sections for a long time, although there's there's no doubt they have a sort of sizable deposit in Corvette. How did you sort of view that and overcome that ultimately given you invested? Did it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so and we they, did they, they were putting the data out yeah. and so we could actually see 
by by looking at. It. So it's something we, we we do. Ideally, we ask the the the, the company to, to to show us, and we we, we walk through. But it wasn't perfect because we didn't have the uh, the downhole survey data. But you could still map out, and you could still see while they were drilling that that you know on the edge on the back they were getting some really big intercepts, and the next hole was good and the hole next to that on section were the same. So you could actually get a feel for where that high grade uh, zone was and uh, just from, from from the existing data. So so yeah, it was it was unusual that they uh, they didn't put it out. But it, again you go back and then uh, you know have a look at the resource they've put out. That that resource is essentially for one zone. There are two little fingers that come off on the, the northern and the southern side of it, but they're I think from memory it was like a handful of percent, like five or six percent is outside that that one contiguous uh, block. And, and that, 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 that we think is, um, you know, why there's so much interest in, in Patriot, the same for Azure and the same, you know, for, for Liontown. Liontown's got a, a heap of challenges uh, 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 going forward. But, but the deposit itself is, you know, there's a single large, um, uh, large pegnotite uh, body that's got a, a single large uh, uh, mineralized zone within it, and and that's that's what's really important. I think the uh, the the big companies, the SQMs, the Albemarle's, and the like, they're actually recognising the importance of that, and uh, that's why they're targeting uh, those companies as opposed to others that might have you know a large resource, but it it's uh, composed of you know multiple skinny stack loads that they know. Uh, are difficult to difficult to mine, create all sorts of headaches for the processing, then ultimately headaches for the uh, refinery. And if you guys each had to make the prediction, does Patriot get taken out in the next two years? Yeah, I think so. There was one other stock we've also spoken at length about on the show, Leo Lithium. A bit disappointing to see that they'd been in suspension a while, then out of suspension, then then back into suspension. One of the details that came out in that sort of intermittent period was that they'd sold a another portion of their interest in the JV to Gangfang, and it it felt and some investors felt that it was uh, a bit underplayed or not fully appreciated by the market, given that they'd given a construct a controlling stake. How did you guys feel about that sale of that portion? Yeah, we we think they certainly did give it away. They probably uh, had had no choice in in, in the matter. Um, we after that announcement, we ended up exiting because it was more around that uh, Mali risk that was, you know, leading into. There's an election coming up early next year. Uh, you've got a military junta that's saying whatever they need to say to 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 get into power, and and that that's not a, a great environment uh, as an investor in terms of the the news flow that could come. So we've got no no insight into why they're they're in the halt again, but it you know. Being in the halt, based on what happened last time, you know it. Uh, you know you have to be quite concerned about you know the the the, f- the future for them. So, so that was really the the thinking around it, as opposed to you know selling down. Yeah, they probably gave it up, but you know to go and do a raise to to try and you know stump up that 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 money instead. I think it would have been really difficult uh, as an alternate solution. And do you ultimately think that uh, Gangfang is the owners of of Gulamina? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for yeah, for a bit less than they are now, probably. So. I mean, it's a challenging situation. You've had companies like Resolute um, 
you know, we there's no jurisdiction that we won't necessarily go. What we will try to do is ensure that we don't expose the fund to too much exposure in any one of those particular where we call it higher risk. Um, and clearly West Africa with the coups that have kind of rolled through over the last 12 months um, is definitely heightening that risk. Um, but Resolute hasn't been affected by what's happened. But clearly a mine coming into production is at risk of fiddling around the edges by political powers. Um, Tanzania had hits, phase in the sun. Uh, there are other risks as well around terrorism in, say, Burkina Faso. So there's a multiple range of different risks that can occur in these jurisdictions and we're alive to them but we don't necessarily know when exactly any one of those things might decide to spark. Yeah. Um, so you always say, yeah, that could be a fantastic asset and we certainly did invest in Resolute as they deleveraged their balance sheet um, over the last 12 months and good management but it's it's also... Um, this what they're doing to Leo Lithium will obviously cast a pall across any investment in Mali for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think it's pretty well reflected in the valuations across West African resources, Perseus, a whole host of the companies. Guys, we've made it to uh, underrated, overrated time, and I appreciate I've taken a whole lot of your time. I'll uh, fire them one after the other at you guys, but if you've got another opinion, please talk over the other person. <laughs> so... Karina, you go first. <laughs> All right, here we go. True North Copper. Neutral. American West Metals. Overrated. Deep Yellow. Overrated. Lotus Resources. Overrated. Lunnan Metals. Underrated. Nickel as a commodity at the moment. Yeah, we're probably neutral. Well, I am neutral. Yeah, I think so. It's hard to get excited, but uh, there's you know, still some good – there's a couple of reasonable opportunities out there because it's been sold down. Definitely has been sold down. Rumble Resources. Geez, I'm a good mate to one of the geologists there. I've got to be careful <laughs> what I say there, but uh, I have to say overrated. <laughs> there we go. Rocks Resources. Neutral. Hard Rock Rare Earth Deposits. In general. Can we have wildly overrated? Oh, there we go. <laughs> Karina, Minerals 260. I'll have to pass on that. No problem. Rick, you familiar with that one? 260, no. We know the name, but I, I can't yeah. be. What's their project? <laughs> They're sitting in and around uh, Delta Lithium, sort of west of neurology. Overrated. <laughs> Next on the list was Delta Lithium. Overrated. Encounter Resources. I actually really like those guys. I think they're um, really smart guys, really good uh, project. I don't like the um, the, uh, the 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 uh, joint venture. Yeah, the the business model. Uh, next to WA one. Oh, the near Niobium. Yeah, the Niobium. I don't like that project, but I think the the stuff they're doing in uh, the joint ventures they got in Northern Territory are really exciting. So I'd give them a, um, a mild, mildly underrated for, for that because they are good projects. All right, there we go. Carnaby Resources. Overrated. Jinder Lee. Overrated. That would be my wildly overrated <laughs> uh, category if we, if we allowed it. Wildcat Resources. They're the ones next to Azure, aren't they? They are. Uh, uh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes. Some the FMG. Lithium hits. Right? Overrated. Overrated. 
Lindian resources. Oh, overrated. Falls into your rare earth bucket. Yeah, that's my hard one. Paladin. <sighs> Neutral. <laughs> Hot chili. Overrated. All right, Karina, last one. Win some resources. Underrated. Underrated. There we go. Thanks so much for over an hour of your time, guys. Really appreciate it. And yeah, money miners can check out Acorn Capital. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Janice. There we go, mate. I know you haven't yet heard that one, but I'm keen to share it. I took a lot away from it. I like the sort of technical approach that those guys bring to it. And it was awesome that they were, you know, keen to share their thoughts on so many different stocks out there. And like we also said, a bit of a different sort of perspective to what we get in Perth. So money of mine, really going Australia wide, having these chats from Melbourne. End of the month, we're going to be in Sydney as well, mate. So we're getting the the view from across Australia. We are. We are going to be in Sydney. We should we should flag that. We should talk about that. Um, planning to be in Sydney at the end of the month for iMark. We're thinking of doing a meetup on the the Tuesday night there. So um, let us let us know if you're a fan of that That's idea, it, mate. and we'll, we'll we'll plan it. Um, we'll get some we'll get some views on a tab. But um, but mate, I love your interviewing style. It's wicked as always, and um, and yeah, just just uh, mate, I think there was a lot of value in that conversation. That's it, mate. One percent better every day. Hopefully, the money miners get a bit from it. And on that note, let's just thank our sponsors. At the top of the show, we had JP Search. Also got Anytime Exploration Services. Terra Capital, K-Drill, and Smek Electrical. Get in touch with all of them. Hooteroo. Hooteroo. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation, and needs.